I can make my solemn act of dedication with the whole empire listening. I should like to make that dedication now. It is very simple. I declare before you all that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service and to the service of our great imperial family to which we all belong. God help me to make good my vow Hello everyone. Hey Sandra. Welcome to Dubious. Hi Neil and hello to our listeners. This is a very sad, dark day. Her Majesty the Queen has passed away at 96 at Balmoral Castle, surrounded by her children and grandchildren. But we're choosing to see it as a hopeful moment in time too, as we are not only looking at the past, but also at the future, what comes next for the monarchy. So we aim to not be bleak and funereal. We want to offer a different perspective for our listeners, and we'll get to that in a minute. You know, the Queen made good on her vow indeed. She did more than just making good, she did marvelous. The soundbite you just heard was part of a historic speech Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II gave on her 21st birthday in South Africa when she was a princess still six years before being crowned queen in 1957. So, as I said, we hope to not be dark and funereal today. We want to offer a bit of an unexpected point of view for our listeners, a glimpse into the future, as it were. Hence the title we chose for this episode. The phrase, the king is dead, long live the king, originated in 1461 on the death of Charles VII. Yes, le roi est mort, vive le roi. And that was then repeated for a number of French kings, most dramatically at the death of Louis XIV. In English, it dates only from the mid-1800s, but it soon became the custom in such somber occasions exactly to point to the future and to assure people the monarchy continues, to give hope and a positive view on what's coming next. It is tradition, and these are the first words Prince Charles, now King Charles, heard when his mother passed away. We're not being insensitive, it's just royal tradition. Yes, we wouldn't be disrespectful. So, on February 6, 2022, Elizabeth Alexandra Mary Windsor became the first British monarch to celebrate a platinum jubilee, marking 70 years of service to the people of the United Kingdom, the realms, and the Commonwealth. And whether you're a monarchist or not, you have to admit that Elizabeth Regina II was a magnificent monarch and also a most capable and beloved mother figure for the British people. She was also the United Kingdom's longest reigning monarch. But everyone already knows that, so I want to tell our listeners that we won't make this episode a history lesson about the Queen, Because, let's face it, all the news stations and all media are already covering all of the historical background and all the dates in minute detail. So there are so many documentaries and movies out there already about the Queen's life. And soon there will be more about her passing away and her funeral service. In fact, we already did all of that in another episode called Operation London Bridge. That episode explains the leaked secret plan, now not so secret, of what happens in the days after Her Majesty's death. What each royal will be doing on D-Day, that's how they codename the day she passed away, and on each day after that, D plus 1, D plus 2, up to D plus 10. What the palace communicates, uh, what they will be doing, where she will be laid to rest, what ceremonies will look like, everything is in that episode. Yes, Operation London Bridge. Just scroll down through our episode, you'll find it. 
Now that Her Majesty has passed away at Balmoral, the plan is unfolding as we speak. Yes, so this episode we want to share with you guys some lesser known facts about the Queen and King Charles. But really fast before we get to that, we also have an episode about the Queen's mother-in-law, Princess Alice, who was a saint. It's the most exceptional story, a princess born deaf with a very high IQ, but not treated as such, practically sterilized by Sigmund Freud himself, given electroshocks. And she went on and saved many Jewish people during the Holocaust while her daughters were married to Nazis. She was almost arrested by the Gestapo, but faked mental illness and was let go, sold all her riches and jewels to feed the poor and lived her life as a nun to help people. And just in case this isn't enough content to satisfy those like me, completely obsessed with the British crown, we have a very special premium episode, Operation Golden Orb, about the upcoming coronation of King Charles. That is one of my all-time favorites. And look, I think it's going to be a bit more difficult for Prince Charles, King Charles III now. We need to get used to call him king. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think it's going to be a little more difficult for him to be as loved as the queen was, but not impossible. I think he will be a great king. Most people have a somewhat uninformed perception of him. I used to not particularly like him either. Just because of the divorce with Princess Diana, her death. But, you know, I was wrong. I didn't know the whole story. Not to say that he was a good husband. Far from that. But we'll discuss about Charles in detail. And as we said, we don't want this to be another history lesson. I think we should give our people something different. Yeah, let's remember her and bring her an homage also as a human being. As Lilibet. That was her endearing nickname from close family members. Rather than just the queen. The institution. Even though it's not easy to separate the crown from the person, we can try, I suppose. And I think it's important that people find out lesser-known things about King Charles III and why we think he'll make his mother proud and be a great monarch in his own right. Prince Philip used to call her Tichou, little cabbage in French, so endearing. And indeed, we can at least try to bring a smile on people's faces to break the doom and gloom we all feel kind of engulfing us. Uh, let's start with one of my favorite stories about the Queen, told by former Royal Protection Officer Richard Griffin, who was on her security detail and accompanied her everywhere for so many years. So the Queen once played a prank on two American tourists who didn't recognize her. Griffin told Sky News that he and the Queen came across the two American hikers one day while they were walking around the grounds of Balmoral Castle, her holiday home in Scotland. And normally, on these picnic sites, you, you meet nobody. But there was two hikers coming towards us, and the Queen would always stop and say hello. And it was two Americans on a walking holiday. And it was clear from the moment that we first stopped, they hadn't recognised the Queen, which is fine. And the American gentleman was telling the Queen where he came from, where they were going to next, and where they'd been to in Britain. And I could see it coming, and sure enough, he said to Her Majesty, and where do you live? <laughs> And she said, well, I live in London, but I've got a holiday home just the other side of the hills. <laughs> and he said, well, how often have you been coming up here? Oh, she said, I've been coming up here ever since I was a little girl, so over 80 years. And you could see the clogs thick. And he said, well, if you've been coming up here for 80 years, you must have met the Queen. I and as it. quick as a flash, she says, well, I haven't, but Dickie meets her regularly. <laughs> <laughs> so the guy said to me, oh, you've met the Queen, what's she like? And because I was with her a long time and I knew I could pull a leg, I said, oh, she can be very cantankerous at times, <laughs> but she's got a lovely sense of humour. Anyway, the next thing I knew, this guy comes round, put his arm around my shoulder, and before I could see what was happening, he gets his camera, gives it to the Queen, and says, can you take a picture of the two of us? 
Anyway, we swapped places, and I took a picture of them with the Queen, and we never let on, and we waved goodbye, and then Her Majesty said to me, I'd love to be a fly on the wall when he shows us photographs to the friends in America, and hopefully someone tells him who I am. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Of course, it had to be Americans. What rock were they living under? A massive one, clearly. But how cool was the queen? Such a good sense of humor. Brilliant. And this speaks to just how modest she was as well. And think about it. Mr. Griffin was also around the same age as the queen at the time. So in fairness, it is possible, you know, that the tourists might have thought they're a couple living nearby out on a casual stroll, especially since they were wearing outdoorsy attire. And the queen was known for the lack of pageantry and pomp while on vacation. It is said that she had a coat that she had meant it seven times as she hated being wasteful, which I love, you know. But still, not recognizing the queen, <laughs> so... And they even talked to her for quite a bit, so her unmistakable voice, at least, should have been a clue. Agreed, agreed. I was just playing devil's advocate, but as far as vacation stories go, meeting the queen and not knowing you met the queen, but still having a photo with you and the queen, that takes the gold. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have a couple of good stories, too. So, in 2007, the queen poked fun at President George Bush Jr. when he accidentally said that she had celebrated the U.S. Bicentennial in 1776 instead of 1976. <laughs> After Bush misspoke and added 200 years to her age <laughs> at a ceremony at the White House, he winked and said, she gave me a look only a mother could give a child. <laughs> at a dinner hosted by uh, the British ambassador's residence, Two days later, the queen joked, I wondered whether I should start this toast by saying, when I was here in 1776. <laughs> <laughs> and Bush responded, your majesty, I can't top that one in his toast. <laughs> and I actually had, had a personal friend who was a former SAS officer who was also on the queen's security detail at the end of his military career. And he had a similar story. We won't repeat it all, but... It was kind of the opposite story as the Americans. He was trying to play a prank, and she caught him and kind of undid the prank before he could pull it off. And he said the same thing. She only gave him a wink and like that mother look, and <laughs> he knew he was caught, and there was never a word said. So, yes, all this stuff checks out. Yes, you cannot not love her, really. She served with such loyalty and skill and poise. And look, this is soft power. The monarch has no political power, but yet the queen or king have soft power, and they can do a lot, a lot on a national and international level for their country. And I'm not only talking about dinner parties and witty, funny replies. There are serious contexts and situations where soft power can do more than political power, actually. Yes, and the monarch's schedule is grueling. They do work from morning till dusk. It's not easy at all, especially if you're a mother, too. Agreed, which is why I believe that abolishing the monarchy would be a catastrophic mistake for Britain. The royal family do more than just earn their keep. One thing that I think is important to mention here is that each Briton pays about £1.50 in taxes per year to sustain the monarchy. But each year, through royal events and their charities and such, the Windsors are bringing back tenfold the income they are given through this sovereign grant. So even if we look at this from a cold accounting perspective, disregarding the historical richness of symbolism, the fascination with the royals and so on, Britain only stands to win from the monarchy. Just the money that comes from tourism, um, huge 
amounts. And let's face it, 80% of it, if not more, of these tourists go there because of the royals and their history. Exactly. When I went to London, I visited everything that had anything to do with the queens and kings. And it is really something to see the crown jewels and the scepter, the orb and the crown itself. And know it will be placed on a new monarch's head in the future. It's not just a priceless artifact. It's in a way a, a live thing. It's still being used. And visiting the Buckingham Palace while the Queen was in residence, I mean, come on, that's something special. That is why people pay for Nobody goes to London to see the Shard or the Gherkin, those new commercial skyscraper-like buildings, right? Yes, and that's why I personally like Prince Charles. Uh, well, King Charles King now. Charles. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, he has an eye for good architecture and uh, you know, what fits and what doesn't in a historic city. And he's not shy about sharing his views. So he and I have that in common, too. We'll get to that a bit later. Yes. And now we have another funny Queen moment. At the Chelsea Flower Show in 2006, Herb Gardner, Jekka McVicker, told Queen Elizabeth that Lily of the Valley flowers had historically been used as a poison. The Queen reportedly giggled and replied, I've been given two punches this week. Perhaps they want me dead. <laughs> <laughs> I think my favorite one was at the G Summit in 2021, while all the world leaders, including Biden, Trudeau, Merkel, Macron, and the Queen, were taking their places for a photo op, she said, are you supposed to be looking as if you're enjoying yourself? <laughs> <laughs> and everybody laughed, including the photographers in the press. Oh, burn. So good. Such a dry sense of humor. Brilliant. Yes, she was uh, very quick-witted and sarcastic, royally funny. Yes. <laughs> and guess what is the next Little Queen fun story before we get to Prince Charles? You're going to say something that few people know about her corgis and horses. I know that sound. I, <laughs> I mean, I can tell the uh, the pet noise uh, that Sandra makes is uh, is telling me what's coming next. Am I right? Yes, we all know the Queen loved her dogs. People mainly know about the corgis, but she also had black Labradors, just like my Odie. Well, I guess the Queens were purebreds. Uh, my Odie is a mutt, but he's the bestest boy and the light of my heart, just like the bear is your light of your heart, Neil. Yes, the bear rules this household. <laughs> yes, the pets always do. Anyway, small digression. The Queen's grandfather, George V, started the Sandingram strain of Black Labs in 1911, and her dad, George VI, loved them, and so did Queen Elizabeth II. But back to what I was gonna say, she loved traveling by train, it was her favorite mode of transportation, but her corgis had trouble climbing up and getting off the train, so she had a special tiny corgi-sized ladder for them, so that they would be able to pop up in and down easily out of the train. Isn't that adorable? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, she really loved her dogs. And what impressed me most as a dog father myself is that as she was getting older, she self-imposed a ban on getting new pups as she knew she would pass away and did not want the dogs to suffer her loss. She saw them as her children as well and wanted them to pass away from old age before she does. So she timed things that way, which is admirable. Agreed. And she used to have, I think, 15 pups, but in June 2022, she only had three left, two corgis and a cocker spaniel. The rest had crossed the Rainbow Bridge. She was heartbroken each time one of her dogs passed. The last one to pass was her beloved Vulcan, the Dorgi. 
A dorgy? Yes, a dorgy. The queen herself is credited with creating the Dachshund Corgi mix, the dorgy. She said it happened by mistake when one of her corgis mated with Pipkin the Dachshund, Princess Margaret's dog. Princess Margaret is the queen's sister, so it was you know, an accident. <laughs> I didn't know that. We used to have one of those that came to the park that you and I used to go to here around Dallas. There was an extra long corgi. I was like, what is that? Corgi with a weenie dog, and uh, I didn't know that's where they came from. Yes, from the queen. <laughs> if anything, it's almost a certainty that dog people everywhere will always love the queen. Yes, some might not be much into the monarchy and might not care either way, but fact remains, Queen Elizabeth was a magnificent monarch. Now, there is much to be discussed about the not-so-magnificent colonialist past of the British Empire, slavery and all that, and the working royals are aware of the reparations and amends that need to be made. And they are open and vocal about it, which is good. But I think having 15 prime ministers serving under your rule, including Winston Churchill, is something extraordinarily amazing. I mean, she just received Liz Truss at Balmoral just a couple of days ago, actually, and she outlasted 13 American presidents. And lots of people don't know what to expect from the new King Charles. It's hard to fill big shoes, I suppose. But my opinion is that they're going to be proven wrong, and Charles will make his country proud. He already has, actually, but maybe people were not paying so much attention to what he was doing. I agree. Some say Prince Charles will be a transitional monarch passing the baton, well, the scepter, to Prince William for the new generation to take over, as he won't have an extremely lengthy reign. He is already in his 70s. He's 73, actually. But I disagree. I am excited for him, and I think he will do great. Unlike his brother, Prince Andrew, who is a massive liability and really a ew character, Charles is a wholesome, extremely capable person, honorable to end. I think he doesn't get the credit he deserves. Yeah, but uh, Andrew, not so much. Well, we talked about Andrew in a premium episode just a couple of days ago, and it was not positive. No, it wasn't. Maybe we'll do another episode about Andrew soon, but uh, it's not the time now. We'll focus on the future king. Prince Charles was born in 1948 in the Buckingham Palace. That's how they did it back then, no hospital. And he didn't have the happiest childhood in the sense that he was mostly raised by nannies, as his mother was crowned queen when he was just five years old. Now, there's a famous episode when young Charles went knocking on his mom's door and asked her to play with him, and she said, oh, I so wish I could. It's not that the queen didn't love her kids, she did a lot. It's just that once you get crowned, your first and most sacred duty is to the crown and you have to serve. The queen missed Charles's first two Christmases. She had to be away for six months on tour of the Commonwealth countries and to attend events and do her daily work in the palace. So even if she was physically there, she did not have much time for Charles. So Charles got attached to Mabel Anderson. She was his favorite nanny. He loved her. And look, let's not omit the fact that it was also customary for royalty to have their kids in the care of nannies. Queen Victoria once said that she was very fond of her nine children, but she only checked on them every three months. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that sounds perfect. What I would not give to uh, hear my 22-year-old daughter's uh, perceived tragedies only every three months. but. Uh, <laughs> There was another nanny whom the queen fired for good reason. She was tormenting the kitchen staff over the prince's dishes. Despite the fact that Charles liked the food, the nanny was constantly sending food back, having it remade 
based on her own whims, and the queen didn't want Charles to grow up to be that kind of person. Super picky and spoiled rotten, just difficult and insufferable. Good, I would have done the same. So, good parenting right here, even if the queen could not be with Charles at all times, she made sure he's surrounded by normal, you know, common sense people in a way, as normal as you can have in a palace as a prince. So, Her Royal Highness Princess Anne was born just two years after Charles, and then came his two other siblings, Prince Andrew, Duke of York, and Prince Edward, Earl of Wessex. But King Charles was a more sensitive, artistically inclined child. He didn't feel entirely like he belonged. He just had different interests, and his closest relationship was with his grandmother, the Queen Mother. Yes, look, novels have been written about Charles's childhood, but what's important is that his father, Prince Philip, was the epitome of what we call a strong man, you know, pure masculinity, but in the old kind of like the wrong sense, when men were supposed to be made of stone, not emotional, or show any signs of quote-unquote weakness whatsoever. So Prince Philip tried to shape Charles in his image, or maybe in an image he thought would benefit the next king of England. So he decided to send his son to the same schools he went to. And that's how Charles first went to Hill House School in London, then on to Cheam School, the oldest school in the country. And even though he struggled to make friends at Cheam School, things were not bad yet. But then, against the Queen Mother's advice, you know, she wanted him to go to Eton, which was more artistic and near London, because she knew Charles's personality so well. So, against her wishes, his father sent him to Gordonstone, a remote, very Spartan boarding school in Scotland. Each morning there started with a run, despite the weather, then a cold shower. Also, the windows to the dormitories were kept open throughout the year. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you've been to Scotland in the winter, but uh, this is not how you build character or strength. Maybe how you stop the creeping damp, but uh, this is also how you develop pneumonia, additionally. <laughs> I would have died within the week. If the temperature goes under 68 Fahrenheit or 21 Celsius, I need my blankies, a beanie, and a cup of mulled wine. And on top of the sleeping and living arrangements, Charles was terribly bullied at Gordonstone. According to Tina Brown, former editor of Vanity Fair and The New Yorker and author of The Palace Papers, the other kids would put metal objects under his bed sheets. They shoved his head in the toilet and made fun of his ears. And we know this to be true from Charles's own letters he sent home. Some parts were published, and he said his time there felt like a, quote, prison sentence, and that, quote, the people in the dormitory are foul. Goodness, they are horrid. I don't know how anybody could be so foul. In another letter he wrote, quote, I hardly get any sleep because I snore and I get hit on the head all the time. It's absolute hell. <laughs> He's right. Imagine freezing under the blankets half the time, and when you finally fall asleep, you get a book or a shoe landing on your head. His brothers also attended the same school. It was boys only at the time, so no girls either. And that's even more cruel, if you ask me. <laughs> I agree. Now, here's a very interesting fact. I love this about Charles. He broke royal tradition and went straight to university after his A-levels, rather than just joining the British Armed Forces. In October 1967, he was admitted to Cambridge, where he studied archaeology, anthropology, and history. He graduated from the University of Cambridge with a Bachelor of Arts degree on June 23, 1970, and he was the first British heir apparent to earn a university degree. Don't be fooled, though. That wasn't mean, or the rest of them were uneducated. In fact, by the time they finished the 10th grade in these old traditional schools, and with their home tutors, 
they're typically three times more educated than someone with a bachelor's degree from an American university. And by the time they're 21, they are professors, in other words. <laughs> <laughs> so the standards for the royals are high by default, as they should be. Too bad it's not the same for all politicians in other countries. Yeah. Uh, not to mention that all of them, the male ones, go to the Royal Military Academy as well. Yes, Charles did too, and he served in the Navy. He was very well respected and apparently very courageous too. He was not there for show. And William and Harry also served in the military. Harry almost ran over an IED. He was not there for a photo op either, so his sons, the heir and the spare, as the tabloids used to call them, are also, you know, honorable. They didn't join the military as a whim. They did the work. By the way, I hated that, the heir and the spare. It's extremely rude. Plus, as a child, to be called the spare, I imagine it doesn't feel great. And it sounds bullying. Ugh. Yeah, kids should not have to read about themselves in the newspaper. Yes. Before we get to the most interesting part about Charles, you know what does not sound horrible? Our premium episodes? Correct. We do two premium episodes per month in addition to our four free ones. And there's already a nice collection of exclusive premium content available for you guys. Yes, and you can get these premium episodes by going to dubiospot.com and clicking the Become a Patron button at the top of the page or by clicking the link in the episode notes here. That way you can support us and the podcast because we have no team of editors, no sound engineers and so on. It's just us and we work on our episodes when we can, on nights and weekends mostly. And not only do you get the premium episodes, but you'll also get all our public episodes ad-free as well. So you'll become dubious podcast royalty, basically, by becoming a patron. We will be your loyal subjects. <laughs> <laughs> I like what you did there, Neil. Very smooth. I would become a patron. Now, you know what the loyal subjects part reminds me of? The Make America Great Again slogan? Because all I could think in response was Make America Great Britain Again. It's for the best, I mean... <laughs> You guys in Britain kind of effed up with Brexit and Boris, but at least you had the Queen and the Firm to save face internationally. <laughs> the Firm is the nickname for the royal family as an institution, and the term was first publicly used by actor Josh O'Connor when he joined the cast of The Crown. Uh, it's a series on Netflix, a uh, very good show. And then Meghan Markle used the same term on her famous interview with Oprah, Yes, and if you ask me, the concept, you know, of the firm was invented by Elizabeth I, the Virgin Queen. You know, the image she projected of this undying, pure monarch. But, you know, she had affairs. She was in love, of course. The point is how she managed her reign and her public image, the public perception, right? She was the third surviving child of Henry VIII, and her mom was Anne Boleyn, whom her dad decapitated. Anyway, I think Elizabeth I was the creator of the royal brand. She understood PR, even back in 1558. Even if the notion didn't exist, she was way ahead of her time. There was a very famous quote of hers that is repeated to every literature student, as far as I know. I know I heard it when I was in college about there was a consideration of whether or not Shakespeare would be in any trouble for a particular play he wrote about uh, Richard II. And the Queen was receiving a report about one of her censors who had seen this play and told her, you know, it's not that big a deal. It's just entertainment. You know, it's fine. And the Queen's response was, I am Richard. Know ye not that. <laughs> and it's one line. It's perfect. It says exactly what she meant to say. 
It's like a tweet that goes viral. <laughs> yes, that's the thing. She knew exactly what to say, what image to project. And I guess, you know, that's why that quote is still so well known and taught to students, because in a way it went viral. Yes, it did. Exactly. And King Charles is ahead of his time as well. I think that's why maybe a lot of people don't appreciate his intellect and his vision as of now. Yes, I think Princess Diana's death simply overshadowed everything for a long time. But one has to understand, he was forced to marry her. Charles was in love with someone else, now Queen Consort Camilla Parker Bowles. And yes, he cheated. So he's not without stain, without sin. But look, Diana had lovers too. That's something that is, you know, a bit less talked about. And it was just a bad match, really. And what is extremely frustrating is that he would have been allowed to wed Camilla if marriages to a divorcee would have been allowed. Camilla divorced her first husband in 1995, just a year before Charles's marriage to Diana. I think behind closed doors, he fought hard for this marriage with Camilla to happen. But after the country was thrown into a constitutional crisis and the monarchy almost was brought down by King Edward VIII when he abdicated to marry the two-times American divorcee Wally Simpson in 1936, I think Charles simply couldn't do the same knowing the risks. Also, and this is a delicate thing, but at the time, tradition required the bride to be a virgin. So we have to also see the whole situation through Charles's eyes and see how unjust the whole thing must have felt to him. To be denied the ability to marry the woman you love just because she had previously been married, I mean, it's a ridiculous, archaic rule. I mean, this was the 1990s, not the 1700s. Compounding this with his childhood and teenage years, the trauma of not fitting in, not being manly enough for his father and all the bullying at school, uh, him running back to his then-secret lover, Camilla. She was the only person in the world he felt understood him. And in that light, it makes sense. And I think Princess Diana's death was wrongly blamed on Charles, and it's not fair. I'm not saying he's innocent as far as his mistakes in the relationship with Diana, but that horrible accident was such a tragedy, you know, in the tunnel in Paris. And believe it or not, he was heartbroken because say what you might, he did care about Diana, just not that way. And he was and is a great father. He loves his children and grandchildren. And that was not an easy time for him either. Luckily, the monarchy has learned that the best way to ensure a successful reign is to allow for love marriages to happen, like that of Kate Middleton and Prince William, mm -hmm. and also with Harry and Meghan. But I think what caused Meghan and Harry to leave and cease being working royals were the racist comments about their unborn baby. Mm -hmm. And my instinct tells me that it was Prince Andrew who made those comments. That's part of why Charles and William don't want him anywhere near them anymore. Well, that in his friendship with Jeffrey Epstein, of course. I have the same feeling, too. It probably was Andrew who wondered how dark the baby skin would be. I mean, that's just disgusting. But we're talking about King Charles now uh, being ahead of his time. As he became an adult, he started pursuing causes that he felt gave him purpose. In 1970, we start seeing his interest for the environment for the first time. That year, he joined the Welsh Countryside Committee, the equivalent of the Forest Service here in the United States, 
and along with other volunteers, he cleaned up litter on a mountain, and on February 19, 1970, the Prince of Wales gave his first major speech on the environment. In 2020, 50 years later, he re-recorded that historic speech. He was back then seen as eccentric and weird, when in fact he was visionary. We are faced at this moment with the horrifying effects of pollution in all its cancerous forms. There is the growing menace of oil pollution at sea, which almost destroys beaches and certainly destroys tens of thousands of seabirds. There is chemical pollution discharged into rivers from factories and chemical plants, which clogs up the rivers with toxic substances and adds to the filth in the seas. There is air pollution from smoke and fumes discharged by factories and from gases pumped out by endless cars and aeroplanes. There are 55 million of us on this island using non-returnable bottles and indestructible plastic containers. It is not difficult to imagine the mountains of refuse that we shall have to deal with somehow. I remember years ago in the 60s, when I was a teenager, minding so much about all the things that were going on, the destruction of everything. You know, the uprooting of trees and hedgerows and draining of wet places and destruction of all the sort of interesting habitats. For 1970, that is visionary. And incidentally, that is a textbook definition of art, by the way, is it must predict the culture of the future in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, we are now drowning in plastic. There is pollution everywhere. I mean, bad air quality alerts are a daily basis here uh, where I live, so they might as well not even be alerts anymore. They're just the default condition. I hate those. I mean, why do they even send those alerts? It's not like we can do anything about it. We have to breathe, so... But look, my feeling is that Charles never stopped being bullied in a way by the press. I mean, when he became an adult, not until recently when the world realized how right he's been all along. The king has many residences, but Highgrove Estate is his home, his favorite place. And his greatest passion is nature. You know, plants, gardening, flowers. He trims the hedges in his garden by himself. He takes care of the flowers, the fruit trees. And he loves being outside to tend his garden, especially his herb garden. And they mocked him relentlessly for this and for something he said in an interview in 1986. I just come and talk to the plants, really. Very important to talk to them. They respond. Well, breaking news. I also talk to my plants. I only have two, a succulent and a cactus. But yes, I do talk to them and I also name them, Suki and Fluffy. And I also had Tony, a small tree whom I brought with me and I replanted here in the garden when I moved, but Tony didn't make it. I mean, I don't see what there is to mock. In fact, the more I know about Charles, the more I like the king, really. Yeah, uh, he's a likable guy. And wait, you're going to love this. This is just like the pets and the plants, your cup of tea kind of thing. So (laughs) he built an eco-town on the outskirts of Dorchester in Dorset. Construction started in 1993. It's called Poundbury. And it's been built according to Charles's vision. He's known for holding strong views challenging the post-war trends in town planning that were suburban and just boring and ugly. Mm -hmm. Uh, The development is built to be a traditional British high-density urban pattern, rather than a suburban one, focused on creating an integrated community of shops, businesses, and private and social housing. There's no zoning, 
as Charles wanted the town focused around the people rather than the cars, which is admirable in itself. Mm-hmm. So having businesses and shops together means that people don't rely on a truck to bring something from outside. It is a self-sustaining place. And lots of green spaces, obviously, as Charles loves nature, as we mentioned just a minute ago. So a wonderful place with very few cars, greenery, and everything one might need just within walking distance, including the workplace? Sign me up, I'm moving. <laughs> Wait, there's more. It's a high-quality environment, and from the architecture to the selection of construction materials, which are mostly local, to the signposts, to the landscaping, all of it. To avoid constant construction, utilities are buried in common utility ducts under the town, and Poundbury is designed for sustainable development, which includes carbon neutrality as well. Plus, you can't build high buildings to obscure the other structures. They're all the same height. No skyscrapers, all in classic style, no glass buildings. And, I mean, so the one historic house I've owned, the reason I bought it in the neighborhood I bought it in here in the U.S. was for that very reason, because that neighborhood had the exact same ordinance inspired by this from England, that if you wanted to demolish a building the rule was you could build a replacement building no higher than your neighbors, which effectively preserves the neighborhood indefinitely. So, yes, it's absolutely a good idea. So I just did a little goog and... <laughs> Sandra and her side googs. <laughs> it's Google. Yeah. Uh, so I did my little goog because I like it my way, right? I'm going to say goog. And I like this town. I like that it doesn't look modern, you know, with all these high buildings and such. It looks quaint and pretty. So that's the best part, I think. Also, the Duchess of Cornwall pub. I love it. Named after Camilla, the now queen concert. Oh, and look. Poundbury is sustainably heated by a biomethane gas plant. It turns food waste and composting maize from the local chocolate factory into electricity. And at the same time, it makes fertilizer for the farms and gardens nearby. And he has plans for yet another new eco town. I was impressed anyways, but the chocolate factory is the cherry on top, I suppose. I'm moving. That's it. <laughs> Sounds like an eco-friendly, chocolatey uh, dream, doesn't it? Yeah. Like a chocolatey extravaganza. <laughs> Let's move on from the chocolate, though, as my mouth is watering. You know how I am with sweets. So King Charles did other experiments, too, on the Duchy of Cornwall estate. He started an organic farm and he founded an organic company. And mind you, this was long before anyone was using the words organic. And again, ahead of his time. And it all started as a small little endeavor. And it became a big thing after he partnered with supermarket chains. So he also has a head for sustainable business, not just architecture. Oh, and let me say this before I forget. I don't want people to think that I hate modern cities, glass skyscrapers, and modern architecture. I very much love it, actually. But it's got to fit with the existing buildings and the natural surroundings. I'll hate them enough for both of us. <laughs> yes. I mean, there are places where such an approach is beneficial, like, you know, Dubai, Singapore, Riyadh, New York, and so on. 
but not Paris, Vienna, Venice, Florence, Prague, and even London, to be honest. Budapest, for example, has the old city and the new city, and you can't build modern structures in the old city for a reason. We have the same thing in Bucharest. It's a big area called the old center, and everything there is preserved as it was way back when. That's the beauty of it, which I think is good. The point is to not destroy the character of the city. You can modernize the interiors in a tasteful manner to fit the exterior still, but don't destroy hundreds of years of gorgeous architecture by adding a skyscraper in the middle. Yes, that's it. There's a sense that people who insist on doing so are saying, what I can think of is better than anything we've done before. And that is inherently wrong. So Charles was yet again trashed in the press after he said this about some of the new modern buildings built in London. Not only did they wreck the London skyline in general, they also did their best to lose the Great Dome in a jostling scrum of office buildings. So mediocre, the only way you ever remember them is by the frustration they induce, like a basketball team standing shoulder to shoulder between you and the Mona Lisa. You have, ladies and gentlemen, to give this much to the Luftwaffe. When it knocked down our buildings, it didn't replace them with anything more offensive than rubble. We did that. I heard this one before, yes, at the very end he actually said something like, can you imagine the French doing something like this in Paris near Notre Dame? And he's right. Uh, he was also trashed in the press for liking luxury. I mean, he's raised as a prince yeah. and he's going to be a king. So Yeah, he is a king. Yeah. And he's not going to be in, uh, in t-shirts and jeans. They said he's too posh for traveling with his harp and watercolors. Uh, he also likes to paint. But, I mean, what's wrong with bringing your brushes and your paints when you travel? That's what I would do. Yes, I mean, it's ridiculous. I think we've all seen that some of the British tabloids are out of control. I mean, we all know why the car Diana was in the night she died was speeding. Paparazzi, right? But yes, Charles was right about London architecture. And this is an older speech. So just imagine what he's thinking now with all the new and never-ending construction in London. And let's not forget the Trafalgar Square scandal. And again, he was right about that, too. Yes, the heated debate was about a high-tech tower looming over Trafalgar Square and an extension to the National Gallery. Charles compared the proposed modern additions to a carbuncle, which is a cluster of pus-filled bumps, by the way. You, <laughs> This is what he said. What then are we doing to our capital city now? What have we done to it since the bombing during the war? What are we shortly going to do to one of its most famous areas, Trafalgar Square? Instead of designing an extension to the elegant facade of the National Gallery, which complements it and continues the concept of columns and domes, it looks as if we may be presented with a kind of vast municipal fire station, complete with a sort of tower that contains the sun. I would understand better this type of high-tech approach if you demolished the whole of Trafalgar Square and started again with a single architect responsible for the entire layout. But what is proposed seems to me like a monstrous carbuncle on the face of a much loved and elegant friend. Apart from anything else, it defeats me why anyone wishing to display the early Renaissance pictures belonging to the gallery, should do so in a gallery so manifestly at odds with the whole spirit of that age. 
of astonishing proportion. Why can't we have those curves and arches that express feeling and desire? What is wrong with them? Why is everything got to be vertical, straight, unbending, only at right angles? And he was right about that, too. Planning permission was refused for both projects, but a few years later, the National Gallery trustees won the financial support from the Sainsbury brothers, John, Simon, and Timothy, for the proposed extension and sought a new architect. So they did add a new wing to the National Gallery, but the architect met with Charles, and Charles actually liked the second proposal. So, yeah, he saved Trafalgar Square as well. I have a fun Trafalgar Square memory. I street danced there once in my pajama top and jeans with a bunch of people I didn't know. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we're going to need more details on that. Can't get into a lot of detail on that one. Let's just say I partied hard when I was in my 20s, especially on vacation. And London is a city conducive to partying. Everyone knows that, so don't judge. (laughs) No judgment here. I spent my 20s in New Orleans, which is exactly the same place in America. So, not that we're too old now, but uh, maybe a bit wiser. Are we? I don't know. Sometimes (laughs) it's hard to tell for us, yeah. And look, as far as saints go, symbolically speaking, the queen was one. I don't think she put a foot wrong, not really her entire reign, right? I mean, mistakes were made here and there, like the palace's silence after Diana's death for a while. I mean, but then she addressed the people as a grandmother. So overall, she was fully devoted to her mission to representing the crown with grace and poise and skill. And I really think she did an exceptional job as a monarch. And if you think about it, we never knew what she really thought about anything, which is the way traditionally monarchs were supposed to act. You don't have political opinions one way or the other, or any opinions on current news for that matter. You don't smile or frown when certain subjects are discussed, because that can be interpreted as approval or disapproval as taking a stance on an issue, right? Imagine how hard that is to always have to have a poker face when us as humans are entirely subjective. Yeah, and that's one of the things that royal observers and commentators uh, are worried about, that King Charles will not be able to maintain complete neutrality on important issues. But I think he'll find the right balance. The royals, especially the monarch, they're not supposed to have a voice. They have to suppress who they are in public. It's a duty to be neutral. To say and do nothing can sometimes be the hardest job, because to be impartial is not natural. You know, it's not human. People will always want the royals to smile or agree or frown or smirk and whatever. And the minute they do, though, they will have declared a point of view, a position. And that's exactly what they should never do. So it's a very hard balance to keep. But Charles has Camilla at his side, who is exactly the type of daughter-in-law the queen, it turns out, was looking for to begin with. Extremely private, very well accustomed to royal duty now. Uh, She'll make a great queen consort. Charles and Camilla are perfectly suited to each other. They are involved in leading many charities for great causes, and they are both experienced as working royals. They are diplomats in their own right with experience on the international stage. And I think the monarchy will be in safe hands, despite the Commonwealth being a bit of an uncertainty in the long term. Yes. And look, Charles said he wants to be defender of all faiths. You know that one of the titles he gets as king is defender of the faith, meaning Christianity. Well, he will be defender of all faith, which I love. 
and the sad and heartbreaking the funeral service for the queen will be, we have to at least try and remain optimistic because remember, she had the best life a monarch could wish for, a most accomplished existence. And I would lie if I said I am not looking forward to the king's coronation, which I hear will be less grand and a bit scaled back compared to the queen's coronation in 1953. I think that's a mistake. I mean, that's just my personal opinion. It's the pomp, the pageantry, the century-old golden carriages with feathered horses and the uniforms, the tradition and the ceremony of it all that makes any coronation magic. I think the palace should rethink scaling it down. If anything, do more, not less. In some cases, less is more. But I agree that a coronation within a monarchy as old as this one is not one of those cases. It's supposed to be magnificent and overwhelming and raise people's spirits after the mourning period for who was one of their most beloved queens, if not the most loved monarch of all. Yes, I agree. And I do get the point. Look, I think maybe it's a consideration of price, uh, you know, cutting down costs and also his age. He's not very young anymore. Uh, so the coronation might be a little bit scaled down and that's fine. It's just that, you know, how obsessed I'm with royalty and I love this thing. So that's why. But as they've been saying in England for centuries... To make sure people know the monarchy will go on and there is no power vacuum, which in the old times after William the Conqueror's death would have meant war or unrest, let's say the famous phrase, the queen is dead, long live the king. Long live the king. And if you like us, don't forget to become a patron on dubiouspod.com or by clicking the link in the episode notes. Recommend us to your friends. If you're a social media person, follow us. We are at DubiousPod on all platforms. Thank you for listening and see you guys next week.